We're going to uh, dismiss the kids at children's ministry. Um, as they go, let me just say thank you for those who serve in our children's ministry. We are so grateful for you. Um, I have, I've taught children's ministry in different churches, and I've taught children's ministry at Redemption Church. Uh, it's a different animal here because we want to be training our kids uh, to know the Lord. And, and these teachers are asked to actually study God's word and draw out truths to teach these kids. And they're working through the Bible. They get through the Bible completely uh, a couple of times over their stay in children's ministry. And that is such a blessing to us. I know you ladies put a lot into that. So thank you for that. But it is about time. I am so excited for this Sunday. I have been looking forward to this Sunday since about this time last year. Um, today we jump into Exodus. And I think it was great for us. I think it was healthy for us to just kind of go over our, our DNA as a church, spend some time kind of getting cemented in these six distinctives. Who are we as a church? What are we about? Um, but it is my conviction and it is my passion that the main course of the church ought to be a steady diet of working through God's Word systematically, working through books of the Bible. Uh, my, my goal at the end is to be able to say with Paul, uh, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. And so that's my goal, is to let God's Word lead and to follow His Word. Um, frankly, it's, it's more exciting for me. It's more fun for me, and I hope it is for you too. Um, Going through a book of the Bible, I get this amazing experience every week of opening up the text and going, what do I do with this, God? Well, I, don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And just to dig in and, and, and find what God's Word says. And I hope you're kind of reading ahead. You know what's coming. Um, read, read chapter 2 next week, and, and, and you'll know this is where we're going. And uh, begin to anticipate that. Um, and I hope as we come to the end of each of these series... Um, that, that you feel like, I've got a pretty good handle on the book of Exodus. Now, I know what the book of Exodus is all about. I understand its, its themes and its flow, and I understand some of the details. And, and uh, so far as a church, uh, we, we've been through, we did the tail end of John when we first started. Um, we've been through the entire book of Acts, uh, the second letter to Timothy, the letter to the Ephesians. And I thought, you know, it's about time we spend some time in the Old Testament. And so we're going we're gonna to spend about a year in the book of Exodus. And right now it's looking like about 41 sermons. We'll see how that pans out. It always changes as you get a little deeper into it. Um, we'll take some breaks along the way. Um, but the way I see it right now, it's going to take us through to about next February. And uh, I've been doing this long enough to know that some of you are thinking, what on earth are you going to do in one book for an entire year? Isn't that going to get stale? Are you going to get bored and bogged down? Like, how are you going to talk about one book of the Bible for a year? And I have to admit, um, there are many who agree with you. I have been told as much in no uncertain terms. John, that is the best way to sink, to absolutely derail a young church. Don't, don't do that. Don't bite off big chunks like that. It's not healthy. Give them, give them bite size. Give them topical. Give them something light. I believe that God's word is living and active. I believe that every word of this book is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what we're after. And so I think as we work through this book from week after week, chapter through chapter, you're going to find that every, every chapter, every passage comes with 
with new truths and, and new application to your heart, to your life. And, and, and I hope uh, it'll begin to change the way you read the Bible. You sit down in the morning and you open God's Word and you go, should I just skim this? Like, what is, what's here? No, you'll, you'll dig deep. You'll trust God. I think there's something here. I think there's something I've got to learn from this. And, and you'll learn how to, how to read and apply God's Word on your own as well. This is true of all Scripture. It's all profitable. It's all beneficial. Um, but it's particularly true uh, of Exodus. And one scholar commented, uh, there is no greater book than Exodus as the foundation of Christian doctrine. And uh, that's a huge claim. I think he's onto something. A lot of people are like, Romans? No, you got to do Romans. I, I think there's more foundational truth in Exodus. That's unpacked in Romans. A lot of stuff is made clearer in Romans than it is in Exodus, but I think it begins in Exodus. We're going to see that as we go along. I'll try and be a good tour guide as we go through and pointing out these, these different truths and things that God is building. Um, but the theological richness of this book is overwhelming. I was just talking with a pastor friend yesterday and saying, honestly, if I knew uh, what I know now about the book of, of Exodus, if I had understood Exodus um, like I do now, the way I, when I started thinking about maybe preaching this book, I think I'd have been scared away. I think I'd have said, you know, there's just too much there. I don't know if I want to open that box right now. Um, it is rich. It is, it's going to be a great ride. Um, most obviously, we speak about God's broad plan, what he's doing from, from creation through to eternity. Uh, we call that redemptive history, right? Well, redemption, the idea of redemption is rooted in Exodus. It's, it's totally explained and expounded in, in Exodus. Uh, Genesis sets up God as the creator. It shows us the fall of man into sin. Uh, it, it shows us the promise of the rescuer to come. And then Exodus is God saying, this is how I'm going to do it. This is what that plan is going to look like. This is what it means that I am a rescuing God. It's this model for how God saves his people. It's these kind of guardrails um, that, that God says, this is the road I'm on. This is where I'm going. And, and, it, and it drives us right to the cross. And it takes us all the way through to the plagues in Revelation and to the promised land of eternity. It's all laid out in Exodus. But more than that, it's God saying through the Exodus, not just this is what I do. But he's saying this is who I am. This is who I am. Our, our title for this series uh, comes out of uh, chapter 5, verse 2, where Pharaoh scoffingly asks Moses, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him, that I should let Israel go? And it's, it's one of those moments in Scripture, you just get goosebumps and shivers. <laughs> Pharaoh, what have you done? What, what were you thinking? What have you just called down on yourself? And, and the rest of the book is God just unloading in living color and, and powerful display for Israel, for Egypt, for the world to see this is who I am. I am creator God. I am sovereign God. I am faithful God. I am deliverer God. I am sustainer God. I am unapproachably holy God. And yet I am present with my people God, I am the I am. And as we've sung this morning, there is none like him. That and more is the God that we get to meet in the book of Exodus. So um, let me pray for us again as we dive into this book. Heavenly Father, um, we tremble. We ought to tremble 
at the wonder of your word. The very fact that God has spoken. That we get to read your words on the page, unchanging, trustworthy, and true. Lord, some would would accuse us of putting you in a box. It's not what we want to do this morning. We want to expect great things from you. We also believe that you are who you say you are, and you are unchanging, and you are, you are the eternal God. And so we want to see who you are. We want to come to know you more as we study this great book. God, as we ask the same question with a very different heart, who is the Lord? Would you reveal yourself to us this year? Would you make yourself clear to us? God, help us to know you. Because we believe to know you rightly is to love you, to trust you, to follow you, to give our lives to you. Lord, we want to know your redemption in our lives. We want to know your sustaining power. We want to know the closeness of your presence. Help us this year as we study uh, your word to grow in these things. Lord, that you would, as you promised, build your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you grew up camping with your dad, but that was a big deal for me as a boy. And uh, there is nothing scarier than waking up in the middle of the night. You're out camping. It's so dark. Strange noises. There's unsettling shadows on the wall of the tent. And it is so dark. And and you know your dad is there. You you heard him come in and, and get settled. But in the darkness, you strain your eyes and you just, you can't see him. And it's so hard to trust. God, Dad, are you really there? Is he really going to protect me? And I think that's where we find the Israelites as we enter into Exodus chapter 1. Frozen still with fear in the middle of a dark, dark night. So I invite you to take out your Bibles if you haven't. Turn with me to uh, Exodus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. Um, We want you to have God's Word uh, in your hand, open your lap, that you can see um, this is not my wisdom. This is is not what I have to say. This is is God's Word. That's our goal uh, this morning. And and if you don't have a Bible that that you can read easily uh, at home, take this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, We are thrilled every time we have to restock our Bible supply. Well, let me read this chapter for us, Uh, follow along. It's a bit of a longer chunk than we often read, but but it's good. So let's follow along as I read. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, 
the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous. They give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. These first couple of verses in Exodus begin with a bit of a note of hope reminding the people of Israel that God has been faithful to this point. So often in the midst of darkness and struggle and trial, there's a need to look back at the past, what God has done. Verse, verse 1 to 7, call out to us, trust him, he's faithful. Trust him, he's faithful. The first word in the book of Exodus is actually almost universally left untranslated. Um, the King James gets close. Um, now these are the names of the sons of Israel. Um, but hidden in that uh, first section there is this tiny little one-letter Hebrew word, and. And these are the names. And you can see why the translators left it out. Who starts a book with the word and? Your literature teacher would be uh, infuriated. But that's kind of the point. He's not starting a new thought. He's not starting something new at all. And we don't need the word and to see that. Um, why is he listing these names? Who are these people that he's talking about? Uh, it's pointing back to the book of Genesis. Um, Exodus is not the beginning of a story. We've got to realize we're, we're coming into the middle uh, of a much bigger story here. Um, it, it's like turning on or beginning to read the Lord of the Rings uh, at at the return of the king, when you haven't read the Fellowship of the Ring, right? What's going on? Who are these people? It's like starting into Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, without having seen A New Hope. Who are these people? What are they trying to do? Why does that giant space monkey make strange noises? What's going on? Exodus is part of what we call the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, and uh, written by Moses and and. and we're coming in on episode two. Uh, Genesis is episode one. It's, it's a lot of setup. And we have a whole bunch of promises made in Genesis, and they all spring out from, from one great promise, the promise from the Garden of Eden, uh, directly following uh, the entrance of sin into the world. We, we talked about this before Christmas. If you were in that series, you got a leg up here. Um, but Genesis 3.15, God promises that there would be this epic battle between sin and humanity, between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. 
and that he would send a rescuer, an offspring singular uh, of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would undo the damage and destruction and dominion of sin. And that promise gets passed along. And you can trace it from Adam down to Abraham. And God restates it, saying that he would make Abraham a great nation. There's that proliferation of offspring. And and through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. There's that promise of the rescuer again. And through Abraham, this promise goes then to his son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob. And now here we are, the family of Jacob. These are the families that came with Jacob to Egypt to survive this great famine. Um, Joseph, of course, uh, was already there. You, you remember the story. He was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, eventually made his way to Egypt where he became great and ruled as the second in command over Egypt. And God used that to save the people of Israel, the children of Jacob, from famine, from starvation. But more than that, God is fulfilling his promises. He's doing what he said he would do. This list of names um, should push us back, remind us of of Genesis 46. And each of these families are listed. And then in verse 3 of of Genesis 46, it says, Then he said, I am God, the God of your father, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation. And I myself will go with you to Egypt, and I will bring, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand will close your eyes. So he's promising to Jacob, go down to Egypt, and I'm going to make you great there. I'm going to begin to to give you fruit, evidence of the fulfilling of these great promises that have passed down. And And he introduces himself as the God of your fathers, reminding him this is the promise that's been handed down. It's coming. And now, starting only with 70 people entering into Egypt, look at Exodus 1, 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased Greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. It's happening. It's happening. They're they're becoming this great nation that God had promised. And take note of the language there. You read that. What what comes to mind? Does that ring any bells? What does that remind you of? It's creation. It's that creation mandate. Look at Genesis 1, 28. It says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's God's blessing in this creation story is that they would be fruitful and multiply and and fill the earth. That promise shows up again later in in Genesis 9. In verse 1, right after the flood, it says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's saying that he's taking his people, Israel, this this chosen nation to which he has made these great promises, and he's making them not only into a great nation, but into a new creation. Israel is going to be a picture of a new Garden of Eden. There to be what it looks like to live in the presence of God, to come out from the dominion of sin and to be the people of God in God's presence, again, under his blessing, out of the dominion of darkness. And as we get into the tabernacle, you see all kinds of imagery from the tabernacle. It's meant to look like, to remind them of the Garden of Eden. 
And of course, that language flows right into the new covenant, doesn't it? Into the, the new people of Israel. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. He's a new creation. God has been fulfilling these promises through, through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And, and he's been making himself a nation through which this rescuer would come, through which he would display his blessing. He's richly blessed them as he said he would. And as they enter into this season of darkness, they can trust God because they have seen him faithful in the past. They can look at his track record and have confidence into the darkness. I ask you, what causes you to fear right now? To doubt God's goodness? When do you feel like that, that darkness is just setting in and you don't know how to trust God, how to believe that he is good? Um, look back. That might be really fuzzy in the present. It's often really hard to see from where we stand. We need to look back at what God has done. Don't, don't try to untangle the present. Take a good look at the past and see, has he not been faithful to this point? How has God been faithful to you? What trials, times of, of doubt and fear has he brought you through? Has he ever let you down? Has he ever abandoned you? He hasn't. He hasn't. Look back on your own salvation. God's goodness in calling you out of darkness, adopting you as his child, giving you this new life in Christ, setting you free from the dominion of sin and death. Do you think having done all of that in the past, God will abandon you now? Look back even further than that. Do you realize this, this history that we're reading, the history of the, of the book of Exodus, this is our history. Right? We are grafted into Israel like a, a branch onto an existing tree. And so the, these roots of the nation of Israel, these are our roots now. This is the history of the people of God. You want to grow in your trust of God and your faith in Him? Read the Old Testament and read it as your history. This is our family history. Look at God's relentless faithfulness and trust Him. He has never failed His people. He has been carefully, faithfully bringing them along, carrying them through times of darkness. And you may not be able to see that clearly today. So look to His consistently proven faithfulness through the past ages. And then as we move into the rest of this passage, it's painful. We just have to admit, trusting Him does not mean the darkness will lift. Verses 8 through the end of this chapter remind us, trust Him, He's not always visible. Trust Him, He's not always visible. It's one of the most striking things about this passage as you begin to read through it. Israel is at its absolute lowest. And as you read through and it gets darker and darker and darker, you'll, you'll notice that God is almost completely absent. He shows up for a moment um, to bless the faithful midwives. But other than that, there's no mention of God's care, God's sovereignty over this, God's plan, working out his, his oversight or intervention. I think it's assumed that he's there, but it's, it's simply not seen. 
And from verse 8 onward, this darkness just gets thicker. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, obviously, um, he would have been aware of who Joseph was. He wasn't ignorant of Egypt's history, um, but he had no personal relationship with Joseph. He had no regard for Joseph and therefore for his family. And so as this nation flourishes, the king is threatened. And his concern, I think in verse 10, it says, if war breaks out, the Israelites would fight against us. And that phrase at the end there, that they would escape the land, um, the word literally means to, to overflow. It, it means to kind of break the boundaries. Um, but I don't think Pharaoh's fear is that they would get out of the land. I think it's that they would overwhelm the land. They would take over. They would rule over Egypt. And so these battle lines are drawn. But it's important to see that this is not just a battle between Pharaoh and the people of Israel. There's something much bigger going on here. This is what God said would happen from from Genesis 3.15. This is the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent at war. This is the the cosmic battle between good and evil playing itself out. Let me me show you. Um, If somebody hates Jews, if they despise Israelites, what do we call them? We call them an anti-Semite. Why? Anybody? They're descendants of Shem. Who's Shem? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're, They're sons of Noah, Right? We go back to to Genesis 9 and the story of Noah after the flood and and Noah gets drunk in his tent uh, and there's some kind of scandal. It says that Ham looked upon the nakedness of his father. Um, We don't know what that phrase really means, but it is not good. It is not pretty. Um, On the contrary, Shem covers his father's nakedness. And so Noah curses the offspring of Ham and he blesses Shem. The descendants of Shem lead down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're they're Shemites. The descendants of Ham, Genesis 10.6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Sound familiar? It's this cursed line of people. Egypt is not just a country. It is like Israel, the descendants of a particular man. It's a line of cursed offspring. And, and, and just to drive that imagery home as if we needed more, um, Pharaoh, what animal does he have as his emblem of power on his crown? It's a snake. Like he's owning this. And so this blessing of God of the people of Israel being fruitful and, and multiplying and God is working out his plan to bring about the rescuer and the serpent is opposing it. This is a demonic assault trying to squash the blessing and prosperity of God's people, trying to kill all of the male offspring. Pharaoh begins with afflicting them with hard labor. They built the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. Um, Just a a side note, um, you go to Egypt today, the great pyramids, um, those were probably standing about a thousand years before Israel got there. Um, Israel may have built pyramids. Um, we don't know. Um, Pithom and Ramses um, are, are not there today. Well, I guess Ramses, we know where it is, and, and it's, it's just flattened. Um, Pithom, we're not sure. It's a mystery where that city is. Um, but the plan was forced labor, and that would, that would slow them down. Pharaoh's thinking, we need to take the men away. We need to work them hard. We need to break up their families. We need to crush their spirits. 
Look at verse 12. It backfires. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And frankly, I don't know how Pharaoh missed this one. Um, I think this is one of those examples where the, the ruling class really just doesn't get the average family. And uh, take the men away for long periods, work them like dogs, and, and what happens when they get home? Oh, honey, I'm so glad you're back. Oh, honey, they worked you so hard. Oh, you poor thing, how can I make you feel better? And nine months later, we've got a baby boom going in Goshen. Surprise! They're proliferating. This affliction is not working. And so Pharaoh ups his game. He, he turns the dial a little more. Verse 13, it says, They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This is more than affliction. Now, this is slavery. Um, and that, that word for slaves, avad, that'll become significant for us as we go forward. Uh, it, it means slave, but it also carries the idea of worship. And remember, the pharaohs of Egypt considered themselves to be gods. And so as the Lord is unleashing his plagues on Egypt, there's twice during the first seven plagues that Pharaoh says, okay, you can go and, and offer sacrifices to the Lord, but he refuses to use the word avad. He refuses to say, you may go and be his slaves. There, there's a battle for worship going on between Pharaoh and Yahweh. So Pharaoh now claims ownership of the Israelites. He says, you're mine. You will work for my glory. In hard, bitter service. Twice it says they were ruthless toward the Israelites. This was work that was designed to kill. And so Goshen, where the Israelites had settled, uh, turned from this kind of lush, coveted region of the land in, into a, a forced labor internment camp. This is, it's, it's the gulag. It seems that was still not enough to subdue them, to bring down their numbers. And so the king took an even more direct approach. And he said to the midwives, Shifra and Pua, um, probably uh, two head midwives over a larger group. And he says, when the Hebrew women are giving birth, if it's a boy, kill it. The females would then be forced to intermarry with the Egyptians uh, within a generation, the race would basically be wiped out and Pharaoh wouldn't have to sacrifice completely uh, the, the number of people. if They just integrate the daughters, but kill the males. And this is now an all-out assault. This is genocide happening. It's done quietly through the midwives in the birthing room. No male was allowed to be present. And, and so this whole nation would be wiped out one suspicious stillbirth after another. The midwives, however, refused to carry out Pharaoh's evil command. And we skip down to verse 23, or 22. You see, Pharaoh became even more brazen, even more direct. The gloves are off now, and he just publicly commands all the people of Egypt. If you see a son born to a Hebrew family, you just snatch him and throw him in the river. Chuck him in the Nile. The Nile, of course, also considered to be a god, an emblem of fertility and life. This is among the worst, most egregious examples of oppression and injustice and persecution the world has ever seen. And it's against God's chosen people. Against his favored, beloved, covenant people. And God is silent. Where is he? Now we know 
We, we have the benefit of hindsight. We get to read quick to the end of the book and make sure it turns out okay. They didn't have that. They're in the middle of this darkness. Crying out, God, where are you? What's going on? Imagine living as a slave under these ruthless masters whose, whose goal is to work you literally to death or to work your husband literally to death. We're spending nine months in pregnancy just hoping it's not a boy. Knowing if it's a boy, you're going to have to watch that child be torn from your arms and just thrown into the river. God, you brought us to this place. You promised Jacob that it would be okay. You've multiplied us. You've blessed us. You've made us this great nation. But look at what has resulted. God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you letting this continue? Hurting here, God. Suffering. As you face trials and doubts and fears and struggles in your own life, Maybe it's, maybe it's a lingering fear of an oppressive government just like Egypt had. Maybe it's a persistent sin that plagues you. Maybe it's illness that threatens you. Maybe it's a boss or a spouse who, who's oppressive toward you, who opposes your faith. Maybe it's, maybe it's depression. Far too often, those who call themselves Christians have peddled this lie that if you just trust God, everything will be flowers and sunshine from there on out. All that will go away. If you just had a little more faith, everything would be wonderful. Um, if you just prayed the prayer right, if you just trusted God, it would be easy and perfect. It's not the way God has dealt with His people. It's just not the case. He was at work. He was still faithful. He was still working out this great plan for their good and for his glory, but, but they couldn't see it for years of ruthless oppression, genocide. They, they couldn't see it. They had to trust God in the darkness, through the darkness. No doubt they cried out to him. But for that time, he did not answer them. We all face those seasons of, of trial, of hardship. Seasons when God just seems silent. Uh, my prayers, I, I don't think they're going past the ceiling. We can be tempted to understand that silence of God, that distant feeling as God being angry toward us, as God having abandoned us, or as God's judgment against us. Now, we need to face reality here. When God feels distant and things are hard, we need to ask some hard questions. First and foremost, I think you need to ask, am I truly his child? Am I truly his child? And certainly there are unhealthy ways to ask that question. That is not a question that should plague you and haunt you. But it's a question that you should be able to ask and answer. Jesus speaks a few times about those who claim to be his disciples, who give outward evidence that is visible, and, and then who walk away, who, who never were truly his disciples. Ask yourself, am I truly saved? Am I truly a child of God? Have I actually turned from sin and trusted in Jesus? 
Have I given my life, myself to Him? Uh, is there evidence of, of a heart transformed by faith? Not, not just words spoken, but an actual trust in God that transforms the way I see my life and the world around me and the way I live in this world. And if the answer is no, well, then you know where you need to start. You know how to find confidence and closeness with God. It's from turning from sin and trusting in Him. Giving yourself to, to Him absolutely and completely. Quit playing around with God. Surrender yourself to Him. But if the answer is yes, yeah, I'm, I'm confident. I'm a child of God. I have, by grace, put my faith in Him, trusted in Him. I've given Him myself. And, and, and there's evidence of that transformed life in, in me. It's not perfect, but there's evidence of it. The next question is, is there ongoing sin that I have to deal with? Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Ongoing sin in your life, even as a child of God, creates a, a relational rift, a distance between you and God. Hebrews 12 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he reproves you, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Maybe you're undergoing discipline. As every true child of God does, maybe, maybe you need to repent of a particular sin. Quit toying with sin. Quit playing with sin as if it's a, a pet that you can control and contain. Kill it. Now, Discipline is not punishment. Those are different. If you're a child of God, your punishment has been paid on the cross of Christ. There's no wrath of God left. He might be bringing trials and struggles into your life carefully, lovingly, patiently to, to purify you, to sanctify you. Take that seriously. Strive after holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But if you're confident that you're truly his child and you've searched your heart, you've cried out with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And you can say, no, I'm, I'm walking in holiness before the Lord. I'm walking in obedience. Again, not perfectly, but in repentance. Then I want you to look at this passage and be comforted. Be comforted. Sometimes for whatever reason, even through the darkest, hardest of trials, there are just going to be times when God remains silent. He allows us to feel separated from Him, to wonder, God, are you in all of this? To trust Him when we don't know where He's taken this. I think the words of David in Psalm 13 are particularly helpful here. David writes this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I think we can all identify with David at different points in our lives. That cry, 
God, how long? The Psalms are full of this, this raw, passionate call out to God. God, what are you doing? God, have you abandoned me? Have you left me? And notice, the Lord doesn't answer, David. And nothing changes in his situation. But something changes in his heart between verse 4 and verse 5. And he continues, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He's looking at God's past faithfulness. He's drawing comfort and confidence from that. And he is deliberately choosing, I will praise the Lord through the darkness without an answer, without knowing for certain what is going on. I will sing his praise. Even though he doesn't feel it, he knows it to be true. We so often let our feelings rule. Feelings are not good leaders. Feelings are fickle. In the middle of the darkness, he chooses to sing to the Lord, to worship him. That's faith. That's what real faith looks like. Maybe not quite so glamorous as you thought it was. But there will be times when your heart just isn't there. When you just have to rely not on what you feel, but on what you know to be true and decide to proclaim the greatness and the glory of God. And sometimes worship is our best weapon in the battle against despair. So trust him. He's faithful. Trust him. He's, he's not always visible. And then finally, trust him. He rewards those who obey. And here I'm looking at Shifra and Pua, the midwives. is a great example of faithful obedience through a trial. Pharaoh had been terrifyingly ruthless. He has shown no respect for God, no regard for man and human life. Uh, he is not someone to be trifled with. And he makes this wicked command of the midwives that they kill all the male children of the Hebrews. What a horrible position for these ladies. Can you imagine? He's taken life left, right, and center. That's not a problem for him. Do I save my own life and just obey? It's not my fault, right? I mean, I'm not, I can't be held accountable for just doing what I'm told at, at threat to my own life, can I? And verse 17 is this amazing statement. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They feared God. They feared God more than Pharaoh. And Pharaoh challenges them, why, why did you let them live? And, and their answer is, the Hebrew women are tough. Actually, they kind of they take a jab at the Egyptians, don't they? They're not like your ladies. These girls are tough. They don't call the midwife until the, until the baby's already out. And at that point, the father would be back in the room, and, and it just wouldn't be possible. Now, my guess is they kind of planned this. Right? Maybe, maybe they just were kind of intentionally late. Oh, baby's coming. We need the midwife. Yeah, okay, I, just, I got an errand to run. I'll be there in a few minutes. Maybe they set it up with the, with the mothers. You know, just don't call us until after the baby's born. Just trust me. It's better that way. Um, however they did it, the point is this. They risked their lives in order to disobey Pharaoh's wicked command. Even though God had been silent and distant, they feared God. They trusted him and they obeyed. 
What do you do when the darkness sets in? What do you do when life is hard and God feels distant, even absent? Your own sin and cultural pressure presses you to disobey God. The day may come, maybe even government mandate demands that you disobey God. Will you trust Him? Will you be willing to say, no, I'll forfeit my life if it means obeying God? Do we obey? Because He rewards those who do. These midwives are the heroes of of chapter 1. Verse 20 says that God dealt well with the midwives and that because the midwives feared God, he, He gave them families. You have to understand that was everything in that day. That was the epitome of God's blessing was to have a family. We're back to this being fruitful and multiplying. This is a simple principle of life. This is one of the most basic principles of life. If you're at the conference yesterday, you heard Shannon talking about this. Obeying God brings God's blessing. It's just better. God's way is the best way. I know that seems shocking to us, but it's just that simple. We say to our kids, honor your father and mother and what? It will go well for you. That's God's blessing for obedience. It'll go well for you. That's not just for kids. We want our kids to learn that if they honor their father, it'll go well for them so that as they grow, they'll learn if they honor their heavenly father, it will likewise go well for them. Daddy said, don't put your hand on the stove, and I didn't, and I'm glad I didn't. God said, this is how to organize and order your life. This is how to walk through this trial. If I can honor him, it will go well. Think about about it as a a fast-flowing river. And in the middle of the river is, is God's design for your life. That's living God's way. And if you swim down the middle of the river, that's the place you want to be. Maybe you're terrified of water. And this is a horrible illustration. I love the water. I love being in the river. Um, The middle of the river is deep. It's flowing fast. That's the place to be. You push out to the edges. You keep fighting against God's design. You know, it's at the edge of the river is rocks, big rocks. They hurt. You start getting close to the edge and they start catching on the tailbone. And you get a little further and you're going to start losing some teeth. That's not where you want to be in the river. It's going to be rough. My dad used to quote John Wayne for us all the time as kids. In fact, he still does it. He did it over Christmas. Uh, it's, it's good wisdom. Life is hard. It's even harder when you're stupid. Life is hard. It's even harder when you're disobeying God. Or it's said to, to Saul, why do you push against the goats? Why do you fight against me? This is not going to go well for you. You want to experience God's blessing? You want to experience the the good life that he has? Obey him. Quit quit trying to think about what do I think is best? What What are my rights? Start thinking about what does the king want me to do? How would God have me respond to this person who has hurt me? How would God have me walk through this trial? How do I honor him? Now, it doesn't mean you won't have trials. Not at all. It doesn't mean sickness goes away. But that's how to live through the trials. That's how to find God's blessing in the midst of the trials. 
Get to the middle of the river. Quit sinning. Quit making foolish decisions. Do it God's way. And don't miss the fact, it's very significant. We're not just talking about the midwives. We're talking about Shifra and Pua. I know we get a lot of babies around here with some good name options there, if you're, if you're interested. Um, we know their names. They're recorded in God's word for generations to come. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who is working with all of his might to protect the honor and dignity of his great name, he's totally unknown. We don't know his name. He's only ever known in the book as Pharaoh, um, which is a title. It's kind of like we would say today, you know, the White House made a statement. It's, it's impersonal. He's the king of Egypt. Whoever that is, he's accessory to the story. He's secondary. He doesn't make the movie credits. Yeah, he's that guy that's like, yeah, I, I started that movie, come and see. And then, oh, they cut my scene. I'm not in the credit. Oh. Pua, Shifra, their, their names are on the movie poster. They're up front. This is a massive honor. And, and it's not just that we know their names. God has taken note. God knows their names. God is holding up these two ladies as this example of how he honors and blesses those who walk in obedience through darkness. Don't let darkness freeze you up. Don't get so caught up wondering, how do I, how do I get out of this darkness? Where do I go from here? What is God doing? That's not your job. Our job in the darkness, what we ought to be doing, what we ought to concern ourselves with is just walking in obedience, trusting God, living life His way, whatever may come. Even if that means sacrifice, even if that means trial or cost to you, just faithfully seeking Him. Asking the question. Don't, don't trust yourself. Don't rely on your own heart. This is what I think will be best. That doesn't matter. Your heart is deceitful. What does God's Word say? Maybe you need to ask some help. Maybe you go to some wiser believers and say, here's the situation I'm in. I feel really strongly that this is what I need to do. What do you think? And, and let them correct you if they need to. Let them say, no, that, that, you're going to bang your head against a rock. Get over to the middle of the river. Let me show you. We need that. When we're in the middle of it, it is so hard. We need that outside help. We need the church. Fear him, honor him above anything else. Trust him. He's faithful. Trust him. He's, he's not always visible. Trust him. He rewards those who obey.